There is an unexpected vacancy in the highest office of the land. Uh, We are now several weeks into the leadership contest in the Scottish National Party, which will determine who the next First Minister of Scotland will be. Uh, What is our greatest need as a nation at a time like this? Well, surely it's the same as it was for the nation in 2 Samuel 19, and that is to bring the king back. To realise that our experiment of appointing leaders who will tell us what we wanted to hear has failed, and to bring back the true king, Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the chapter in front of us under two headings this evening, uh, seeing how they were in a very similar position to us, uh, seeing firstly the need for the king, and then secondly the return of the king. So firstly tonight, the need for the king. Just like ourselves, God's people in this part of Second Samuel have been facing what we could call a leadership contest Would David be king or would it be Absalom? Some are describing the current SNP leadership contest as a civil war or at least saying that that's where it will lead uh, within the party. Well, the leadership contest in Israel did lead to a civil war, a a literal civil war, a battle where in the last chapter 20,000 people were killed. One of those who was killed was Absalom himself. He had been caught by his head in a tree, suspended between heaven and earth. Joab, David's army commander, had found him and finished him off. But there's still a vacancy at the top. Now, the obvious thing to do, of course, would be bring, to bring David back as king, but that hasn't happened yet, and it's not going to happen automatically. And instead, we find the tribes of Israel hesitating and debating. Some of them recognize in verse 9 that David is the one who has saved them from their enemies in the past, and now the king they appointed is dead. Absalom wasn't the better king they thought he would be, the glorious reign he had promised when he said, oh, if I was king, it hadn't come to pass. The people had been bewitched by a handsome flatterer, but some of them have now started to come to their senses. And so they ask, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And is that not God's question to Scotland tonight? Our nation has tried putting a rival king in the place of Jesus Christ, the king of self. But how has that worked out for us? Are people happy? Are they flourishing? No. Uh, The family structure has broken down. Children are brought up without discipline and are soon out of control. There's an epidemic of loneliness. Alcohol and drugs slay their thousands and their tens of thousands. Scotland's drug deaths are nearly four times worse than that of any other country. The drugs capital of Europe is Dundee, uh, which has just taken over from Glasgow. 
I know he's not Scottish, but the, the sentiment is, is the same. The comedian Ricky Gervais, he posted on Facebook last month, he said, whenever you're feeling down about life and thinking that no one cares, just remember you'll be dead soon and none of this will matter. I guess it was meant to give folk a lift. But if we really will be dead soon and none of this will matter, why keep going? Uh, And tragically, many decide not to. There is moral confusion as to what is right and wrong, uh, what is true and false, uh, on a massive scale. We reached the point where in the final days before announcing her resignation, the current First Minister was refusing to answer the question of whether an individual was male or female. Not because the answer wasn't obvious, but because she knew that if she did, she would go up against her own government's plan to let people self-identify as whatever they want. Over a hundred years ago, G.K. Chesterton wrote that there would be those who would say that a man is free to think he is a poached egg. It no doubt sounded ridiculous at the time, but it's no less ridiculous than what people believe today, and not only believe, but are encouraged to believe. Materialism, Chesterton prophesied, would destroy man's humanity. Not merely his kindness, but also his hope, courage, poetry, initiative, all that is human. And his prophecy has come true. For many people in Scotland, their their life, or rather their existence, consists in sitting in front of the TV, medicated to the eyeballs, whether legally or illegally, And at the other end of society, people may be working long hours, they may be materially rich, but they're relationally poor, and they're not happy. They're looking for meaning in life, in work, in family, in some political cause, but they're not finding it. And yet we as a nation refuse to acknowledge what the problem is. The problem is deprivation, the problem is lack of funding, the problem is lack of education. So we're told. The National Church has long since given up on the Bible. As a result, people see no reason to to keep attending it. Uh, The statisticians tell us that in 20 years it will be extinct. And the question comes to our nation Why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? This nation once formally recognised Jesus Christ. In the National Covenant, 1638, the Solemn League and Covenant, 1643, Scotland, not just as churches but as a nation, formally recognised Christ as king. But these covenants once signed by King Charles II, were publicly burnt by him. And now in 2023, many feel that someone who holds the Orthodox Christian beliefs is not a fit candidate to be First Minister of Scotland. And the question comes, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? 
following Absalom had gone disastrously for the people of Israel. He, he hadn't been able to deliver what he promised. Just as our culture's promises turn out to be empty. Like Scotland today, the people of Israel were at a crossroads in this chapter. The most obvious thing in the world was to bring back the true king. Their futile, suicidal, experimented field. But would they do it? Would they do it? But it's not just the nation of Scotland that this question comes to this evening. It's also, I think, the Christians of Scotland... It's been interesting to see the different reactions to our sister in Christ running for first minister. Many, of course, have been horrified that in the 21st century, someone with the audacity to believe that marriage should only be between a man and a woman or that children should be born in wedlock rather than outside of it, that someone would have the audacity to believe those things. Now, we would expect nothing less of a Christian putting themselves forward for office. But it has still been refreshing to see her being willing to lose supporters and risk derailing her whole campaign rather than hide or compromise her beliefs. But I wonder whether the attempts of Christians in general to respond to the attacks on Kate Forbes fall short of saying what we really believe. On Friday, the, the London Review of Books published a long article about her. It's by a man called Fraser MacDonald. He grew up in the Highland Free Church, uh, but hasn't continued in the faith he was brought up in. But his article is still pretty perceptive. He notes that Forbes' evangelical supporters appeal to plurality of thought and liberty of conscience. He, 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 he says that Kate Forbes herself has called criticisms of her illiberal. But are those really the things we should be appealing to? One fellow believer commented back when the whole row started... I'm wondering whether the appeal to liberalism and pluralism on our part isn't something of an expedient rather than reflective of our real priorities. He went on to say, is the problem that our society is becoming illiberal or, or is the problem that our society is just wrong? In other words, are Christians trying to debate the issue like secularists? To talk as if a pluralist society is a good thing. Or at least to talk as if Christian beliefs are simply on the same level as other beliefs. And all we want, all we want is for our beliefs to be respected the same way other beliefs are respected. Forbes has described herself as a servant of democracy. She said she won't seek to undo uh, same-sex marriage. But as MacDonald notes in his article, precedent suggests that wherever evangelicals hold power, their beliefs do inform their policies. Surely they should. Again, to quote the author of the article, he says, It is near, a near impossible task to believe that sex outside heterosexual marriage is wrong, while somehow maintaining that this belief isn't important or consequential in a political, re political leader. 
And yet the reason that he says that is because many Christians are acting as if it isn't that true, as if, as if one thing won't necessarily affect the other. If we believe that same-sex marriage is harmful to society, if we believe it's harmful to children, if we believe it stands in the way of human flourishing, if we believe that it, it distorts a, a totally one of the greatest pictures of the gospel God has given us, and above all, if we believe it displeases Almighty God, then surely Christians in positions of power should be seeking to rule it back. Now to come out and say that would undoubtedly end any chance of a Christian being elected first minister. But here is a chance to say what our nation needs to hear. Now perhaps there's an argument that, that ruling it back just isn't feasible, so it's best to work with where things are now. Uh, but even to, to accept that and to set aside that particular issue... If Christians were in the majority in this country, surely we would want to see laws passed that reflected what we believe to be true. And so all this talk about pluralism and liberalism isn't really what we actually believe. Surely the Christian church, at least and in particular at this moment, has a responsibility to say that what we need as a nation is to return to Jesus Christ. Not simply to say that Christian beliefs deserve to be treated as equally valid in a pluralistic society. Now, it's one thing to point out the hypocrisy that a so-called pluralist society welcomes almost any views apart from those of evangelical Christians. I think it's good to point that out. But, but surely we have to go beyond that. It's another thing to talk as if pluralism is a good thing or to go along with the idea that personal religious beliefs shouldn't affect policy. And so could it be that God is asking a question of the Christian church in Scotland at the moment and of other Christians in the UK who are seeking to, to argue uh, the case on purely secular grounds? And could it be that that question is, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? If you've ever wondered why the RP Church exists as a denomination, why we, we stayed out of the Church of Scotland all those years ago, this is effectively the issue. After the time of persecution came to an end, a time in which many covenanters had been martyred, the Church of Scotland was reconstituted in 1690, but any reference to the nation's solemn vows to God were gone. Those who had suffered so much during the killing times were grateful that the persecution had come to an end, but they looked at the constitution of the, the Church of Scotland as it had been reconstituted. They saw how different it was to what it had been before. And they, they asked the question, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And eventually they realised that their question was never going to be answered. And so the RP Church came into being as a separate body. And as time went on, more and more people withdrew from the national church and they formed other denominations all over the question in one form or another of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Uh, 
and how it wasn't being recognized in the national church. And so firstly, tonight, the need for the king. Just as it should have been blindingly obvious in Second Samuel 19 that the experiment had failed, that the need of the hour was to bring back the true king, to, to bring back the one God had chosen as king, surely it should be blindingly obvious in Scotland today. But some, many, have never really heard about the true king. And so we must tell them. Others know about the true king, but the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And for the church of Jesus Christ today, our message to a sin-sick world cannot simply be, we want an equal seat at the pluralist table. Rather, our message must be the true king must be brought back into the heart of our national life. Because until that happens, the deepest needs of our nation cannot be healed. So firstly tonight, the need for the king. For our society not to acknowledge his kingship is to continue pressing the self-destruct button. But one day he will return bodily and in glory and all will acknowledge him but what will it be like when the true king comes back because actually the return of king david in second samuel 19 is a bit of a mixed bag in some ways he points us to what jesus return will be like but in other ways he falls short and so secondly tonight we see the return of the king the return of the king. Before looking at the individuals who come out to meet David as he returns, something to notice straight away is that they are the same individuals who encountered him as he was leaving. Back in chapter 16, as David flees Jerusalem, he meets Ziba, who brings him donkeys and provisions. Then he meets Shimei, who belongs to the family of Saul. Shimei curses David, he threw stones at David and his men, but David refuses to let Abishai kill him. And then at the end of chapter 17, just before the battle, Barzillai was one of three men who came out and brought beds and honey and sheep and cheese for David and the men who were with him. And now in this chapter, David meets the three of them again. Ziba comes out to meet him, and then Shimei and Barzillai. And before we get into David's interactions with them, one application of this straight away is that a day of reckoning is coming. And how we responded to the king the first time will determine how he responds to us when he comes back. In other words, the big question when it comes to each of these three men and how David will treat them it will be connected with how they treated him in his hour of need. How they responded to a suffering king will shape how he responds to them. Now he is a, about to be a glorified king. And it's the same with Jesus. A day of reckoning is coming. 
and how he responds to us when he comes in his glory will will depend on how we responded to him the first time around. How we responded to him as a suffering king on the cross. Whether by faith we saw him as the son of God or whether we were offended and ashamed by him. Shimei and Ziba in particular might have thought that David was never coming back. But here he is. And it's going to be a day of reckoning for them. Like Jesus, parables, uh, the owner of the vineyard has come back. So how does David respond to these three men? Well, the, the heading, I think... Uh, at the top of this section in our Bibles, just before verse 16 there, perhaps gives the wrong impression, actually. The title is, David Pardons His Enemies. And that title is partly true. Uh, David refuses the request of Abishai to put Shimei to death. We're reminded, perhaps, of Jesus' refusal to let James and John call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village which didn't receive Jesus. They want to call down fire from heaven. Jesus turns and rebukes them. Here Abishai wants Shimei put to death and David responds, What have I to to, to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? But is it a case of David pardoning his enemies or is it more the case, verse 22, that he doesn't want anyone in Israel put to death that day? Because there's nothing to say that Shimei's repentance in verses 19 and 20 is genuine. Shimei has made a big miscalculation and I don't think we have any other Any reason to see this is anything other than an attempt to save his own skin. He's a signed up member of the Self-Preservation Society. Now perhaps if this chapter was all that we had, we might think his repentance was genuine. But in 1 Kings 2 verse 8, David will leave instructions with Solomon about Shimei. David tells Solomon that although he has sworn not to put him to death with the sword, that Solomon isn't to hold him guiltless. Now, I don't think we have to defend everything David does in this chapter. Some of his decisions seem to be clearly influenced by expediency and pragmatism. But I think we can take David at his word here when he says he doesn't want anyone put to death on the day that he comes back as king. Just like Jesus wouldn't let James and John call down fire from heaven on that day. But those in that village who rejected him would still have to answer for that rejection one day if they didn't repent while they were still alive. And so in both cases, judgment is delayed rather than sin being pardoned. Either way, Shimei is an example of someone who repents only after the king he cursed returns in glory. And it's too late. It's too late. Just as it will be too late for anyone to try and put their trust in Jesus once he comes back. 
Now is the favourable time. Now is the day of salvation. So to say that David pardons Shimei is to go too far. He, he delays judgment. He promises that he won't personally do it. But Shimei will still have to answer for what he's done. And then we have Ziba. And David definitely doesn't pardon him. He, he just simply ignores what, what he's done. Having heard Ziba's part of the story back in chapter 16, we now hear Mephibosheth's. Uh, Mephibosheth, you remember, was a, 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 a relative of, of Saul, um, but, but he, he was a cripple, and Ziba was his, his servant. Uh, Ziba says that Mephibosheth had changed sides, but Mephibosheth uh, says here that Ziba had tricked him, uh, that Ziba had left him behind. Uh, Mephibosheth's very appearance testifies to the fact that he's telling the truth. Sometimes you see one of those people on the news who've decided in, in the 1980s or something that they're not going to cut their hair until their football team wins the league. Uh, they, they probably think it's only going to be a year or two, but they, they support Tottenham or something like that. And uh, now decades have gone by. Uh, and Mephibosheth has, has done something similar in verse 24. He hasn't taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard or washed his clothes all the while that David has been in exile. He hasn't been living it up while the king has been away uh, like those wicked tenants. Uh, quite the opposite. He, he's been mourning David's absence every single day. So clearly Ziba has been lying when he said that Mephibosheth has gone over to the other side. But even though Mephibosheth has been loyal to David the whole time, David doesn't completely re reverse his decision to take Mephibosheth's land away and give it to Ziba. Rather, he only gives Mephibosheth back half the land. It's very surprising. And it's hard not to see pragmatism at work. Someone has described it as a decision that is both unjust and understandable. Why is it pragmatism? Well, if you look back to verse 17, we're told that Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants. And it seems that David thinks a man with these connections is worth having on board. Just as his actions in regard to Shimei may have been swayed by the fact that Shimei had a thousand men with him. People are divided about whether to bring back David as king or not. He gets Judah on, on board uh, as the chapter comes to a close, but only half of Israel. And so David needs all the support he can get. The great need of the nation has been to bring David back, but, but David himself doesn't actually come out of this chapter with a lot of credit. He makes peace with his enemies, Yes, but it's a peace despite false repentance or no repentance. Earlier on in the chapter, his removal of Joab as army commander also seems motivated by political considerations. Uh, maybe it's partly as well to do with the fact that, that Joab had ignored his instructions about killing Absalom. 
But David appoints instead Absalom's army commander as his army commander, uh, which seems like it's meant to show that he, he is willing to welcome rebels into his kingdom. Uh, so it's, it's a gesture to show that he will welcome in others as well. Perhaps some of the decisions David makes in this chapter are examples of wisdom and caution, but others surely are just pragmatism. How different is the peace that Jesus Christ makes with his enemies? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Unlike David, God doesn't need us to be on his side, but he pardons us anyway. And unlike with Shimei and Ziba, God actually pardons our sin rather than simply ignoring it or delaying judgment. And he does so in response to genuine repentance rather than false repentance. And that repentance itself being his gift. David, as we saw previously, would have died if he could have to save his son. But Jesus gave his life for his enemies. But in David's final action that we're going to look at tonight, he's a better picture of Jesus. Because he rewards someone who hasn't been ashamed of him the first time round. Uh, that is Barzillai, who we read about in verses 31 to 40. You might remember Barzillai and his ministry of refreshment at the end of chapter 17. When he met David with, with food and so on, uh, part of it's recounted here in chapter 19. And now he's rewarded for it. He's rewarded for it when the king comes back. What an encouragement that is for us if we spend our lives seeking to refresh God's people. Even by giving them a cup of cold water at times. We will not lose our reward just as Jesus said. If we are ashamed of him and his people on earth. He will be ashamed of us. But if we are not ashamed of him and his people, he will not be ashamed of us in heaven. And unlike Barzillai, we won't have to pass that reward on to anyone else because in heaven we will be able to enjoy it. And so we've seen tonight the return of the king. It is what the people need even if it takes them a while to realise it, and even if David falls short of what he should have been. And yet, despite David's flaws and shortcomings, this chapter points us to the need of our society to bring back the true king. And also warns and encourages us that how we respond to King Jesus now will determine how he responds to us on the day of judgment. Amen. Well, we'll close uh, by singing from uh, the second last psalm in the psalm book. We sang the first psalm earlier. We'll sing not, not quite the last, but the second last psalm now. Psalm 149 on page 364. Um, the tune will be done firmly. Dunfermline 76.
And we have in this psalm joy in God. We sing of our joy in God. And if we do that now, as I trust we do, what joy will we have when when our King returns in glory? When all our hopes and anticipations are fulfilled? But there will be some for whom the return of the King will not be joyful. Uh, Some who in verse 5 here will experience his vengeance because they have scorned him rather than believed in him when they had the chance. Boys and girls, if if you've seen the story of Robin Hood, uh, in the story of Robin Hood, the true king is away fighting in battles and there is, there is a man called Prince John ruling, but he isn't the true king and he's treating people badly uh, and that goes all right for him for a while. But one day the real king will come back. And what do you think the real king w- will do when he comes back and finds, uh, finds that, that Prince John and, and his friends have been, have been robbing the, the poor people and treating them badly well the true king will will punish those who have been bad when he's away and it's the same with Jesus when the true king comes back he will punish all those who haven't trusted in him and haven't believed in him so Psalm 149 page 364 tune 76 will stand and sing praise <laughs> 